Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Parfit of the Sixty Foot Dolls. Richard talks to me about his musical influences, the music he grew up with, forming the band, life on the road and in the studio, and also his career as a session musician, songwriter and songwriting lecturer. It is a fantastic interview and I'm extremely grateful for Richard for giving up his time. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the podcast to talk about all the ways you can support it, so please stick around for that. In the meantime, here's Richard. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Richard Parfit. How are you? Well, it's a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm fine in uh, South Wales, in Penarth right now. Ah, oh, great. I always ask this question. It's obviously because of the timing of the podcast, everything. But what, how's your how's your twelve months been? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's it's been pretty grim actually for different reasons. But I am very grateful. Also, that it's it's been so awful for so many people. Not just not just people who who've lost their lives, but uh, everyone who's been sick and suffering from long COVID. That's still going on. Mm. Um, my own story is that just before lockdown, I was meant to go to Australia. I got a daughter in Australia. I hadn't seen her for two years and another year's gone by. So I won't be seeing her for another year. So my family's kind of split up all over the place. So I haven't yeah. seen any of my kids, you know, they've grown up now, but really I, I kind of still feel that even though the sense that lockdown is lifting or has lifted, it still seems to me that it's very, uh, you know, that, that cloud hasn't completely gone away at all, you know? Mm. Well, you know, the podcast is where we, we look back at the 90s, that that special golden era of uh, explosion of bands. And you were in the thick of it as well, weren't you, with uh, with the 60-foot dolls? And I always like to sort of look at back as well at sort of your influences in terms of what you grew up with. What were your early kind of memories of getting into music? Well, I got um, two older brothers and um, I had to share a room with one of them. And he was a massive music fan, my older brother. And uh, he's eight years older than me. He's quite, quite, quite a bit older. My, my initial introduction to music was through my older brother. And it was st- through stuff like um, Neil Young, uh, you know, the Beatles, definitely, but mm. Bowie. And then when, and he brought all the punk stuff home. So uh, the Stranglers and the Pistols and those first Bruce Springsteen albums. So uh, it's quite serious music, really, for somebody who was still, you know, in, in school. But the thing that really chimed with me were were Bowie and the Jam, really, and and the the kind of uh, the Pistols I loved. They're kind of obvious, really, but but they they were big big records for me. The Beatles for me are like you know it's a it's a kind of a almost a cliche to say they're the Beatles of music, but I think they are. I think they're so far above everybody else that uh, that that's that's what I go running back to when times are hard. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And in terms of like picking up a guitar, I mean, what? Who inspired you specifically to be to be a guitarist? What happened there was that my other older brother, who was three years older than me, so somehow he got his hands on a drum kit. It was an ancient mother of pearl thing. It was so old this drum kit that it actually had real animal skins for heads rather than plastic oh, skins. Right, yeah. My dad bought it in a boiler in a work workman's boilers club or something um, for his birthday. He wanted a drum kit. This isn't about, this is about 77 uh, or something. So there was this drum kit, which I wasn't allowed to, you know, my brother's like, don't touch my drum kit. <laughs> and, um, and then what happened was is that he joined the Navy at a very young age. He uh, joined the Sea Cadets, left home at the age of 15, and, uh, and never came back again. And, um, 
and there it was, that drum kit. And and one day I sat on it, started messing about on it, and we had a record player in the room, and I, I can remember exactly what happened. I, I had to um, do it again by the Beach Boys. I've been talking about all the places. We... I put it, it was on a record player, and I somehow managed to find the beat, just the kick, which is a straight forward on the floor, and the snare, you know, uh, I managed to kind of lock into like in in my head at least it seemed like I was locking in, yeah. And the feeling the feeling that I got from being just part of the music, just being part of this bigger thing, because I had no huge interest in the drums, but all of a sudden it's like I was part of this music, and it was it was a real thrill. And um, shortly after that, my parents emigrated to Canada. Uh, my two brothers by now had left home. I was still in school. I was 14 and um, I couldn't take the drum kit. It was too big. So I sold, we sold the drum kit and I bought the bass. So that, that was how I got into it. Then I moved from bass to guitar. Uh-huh. That's the story. That's the story. <laughs> and so the, did the songwriting come quite quickly then? Or did it, was it something that you, you picked up while sort of learning to play essentially? You know, I'm really interested in songwriting. I, I, I actually ended up um, teaching in universities, teaching songwriting classes. And, um, I'm always interested in how people come to songwriting and their tech techniques. And I think that uh, I'm not sure I, for me back then in the, in the late seventies mm. is when I started to try to write songs. It, we're, we're talking about a time when people, you know, you had your albums, you didn't have a lot of albums. Most people did. I mean, you, you'd go to school and you'd swap albums. You know, I remember taking my space holiday, David Bowie album to school and I swapped it with a friend of mine called Jonathan John Tom, he had a Kraftwerk album, and that's how I got to hear that album, and that's how he got the Bowie album. You know, you, you didn't, you couldn't afford to buy that many records. I think I had about six albums or something, and you just keep, you um, kind of rotate them with friends at school who had different albums. So basically, I had a Beatles complete, and most guitar players, I would imagine, will tell you that they had a Beatles complete if you go back to the late seventies, early eighties, and I knew the songs of the albums I had. I had about three Beatles albums. I had the White Album, had the first album, Please Please Me, and we had Peppers. So I knew those songs. Uh, I think we had the Blue and the Red album as well. But there's a lot, a lot of people's songs in there that I didn't actually know. And there was no internet, obviously. There was no way of listening to these songs. And so you could learn the guitar simply by looking at the chord shapes, looking at the dots, where the fingers go, you know. Mm. All of a sudden, you could look at a song like something like uh, Baby, You Can Drive My Car, and you wouldn't know how it went but you'd know that it went A to D, A to D. So you'd start strumming it and you start singing the words. So you'd come up with your own melody, really, your own top line. So it's a bit like writing a new tune to pre-existing chords. I think Oasis could tell you something. Yeah. (laughs) But but, uh, so that's how I started. That's how I literally started to realise that you can actually, uh, it's a kind of a frame. It gives you a framework, you know? Yeah. That's how I started. I was always interested in, in writing songs um, rather than uh, the kind of, there's, there's something about playing covers. It, it can, you can get a great, th- it's a really brilliant way to learn how to play an instrument playing covers. And it, it's a really great way of learning how to write songs because what you're doing is you're absorbing the form, you know? So people often say that the Beatles um, haven't got any music theory, which is, which is true. And neither have most popular musician, musicians. But um, I mean, the Beatles played covers every night for years and years and years, you know. Yeah. So they would have they would have absorbed all that um, theory, all all the song forms. Yeah. So that really, and punk rock came along. But by the time I was about uh, 
uh, 14, I think it was, I can't remember. You know, that obviously, you know, because one minute you've got these songs which are impossibly sophisticated for somebody who's just struggling to to learn to play guitar and all of a sudden you've got bands like the Buzzcocks and the Jam and uh, the Ramones who are kind of putting out, putting out records with three or four chords, you know, high energy rock. So it was, it was really a great way, a great time to... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll be right in saying that like the 60 foot dolls, there's, there's definitely sort of a, there's an urgency and attack to, to the, the style and the delivery of your vocal and everything. And does that come from like those, uh, that, that rock or that, you know, you mentioned the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and things that, and you, you know, it said that you, you know, you looked at a lot of bands that were American bands, especially that were touring around your hometown and things. I think bands are very interesting. Um, there's a real chemistry or alchemy to bands, you know? So I'd been in different groups be before Sixty Foot Dolls. I, I was in my late twenties when the when the Dolls uh, formed. I'd been in a couple of bands before that. One of them was signed and got dropped. And um, but when, when you're in a band with, there's only three of us in the group, and so it's really important that everybody's doing something. You know, you're not kind of you can't really carry any dead weight in the band when there's three of you. Every, everybody is everybody's doing something. You make you can only make a certain type of uh, sound or di a dynamic. And so the Sixty Foot Dolls. I really feel it was a band in the sense that I don't think any of the mem any of the Carl or Mike, we couldn't really uh, alter the members, you know, it would have changed too dramatic, too drastically. Mm. But when we started the band, which was probably in 92, 91, 92, me and Mike, who started a group and we started auditioning drummers, we were, we were listening to the bands that we really liked then were Dinosaur Jr. That's who we really, really listened to a lot. Both of us were really into the Beatles. Mike was really into the Fall. I was um, we really liked the Payment first album. I was really into the Yardbirds and the Stones. We were just a rock a rock band, really. You know. Mm. Did those roles in the band kind of settle quite quickly, and was that easy to slip into, or did you have to really work at that? It was quite. We were quite a dysfunctional group, actually. That's that's the truth. Um, we were great friends, and, and we still are. All of us, we still are great friends, but. Um, it was a very dysfunctional band. It was very kind of emotive, um, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting. So we nearly split, <laughs> nearly split up like every week for the first few months, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't sure. If, I wasn't sure if it was going to work. Um, or, or and and uh, I, because I'd been in bands before, I'd really kind of thrown away the whole notion of getting signed and stuff. It was it was really something that we just kind of we were we were fortunate that that kind of. The time of Britpop was just around the corner. We didn't really didn't really know, you know, that uh, that that was coming. What was evident to me is that w when we were when we were cooking, you know, when it when it was good, when it sounded good, it's because all of us were kind of operating at a, at a, at a kind of a high level, and it and it was a for those people who have been in bands, you know, if it's really if it's really going well, if you're playing with other people, it it, it is uh, it does become like kind of one thing. And with the with the with the gigs then. You already sort of, I guess, before even any kind of record deal or any kind of record recording interest came about, you were already kind of getting yeah. a, fo a following. Uh, what was the that like? It all happened very fast. Like I said, it was. Um, we were talking before we started the interview. I won't go into it, but about how timing can be uh, fortuitous, you know. Yeah. And really, the dolls was uh, happened. All it happened incredibly fast. Really, um, we d we didn't even have a set list, I and mean, we were getting 
phone calls from A&R and we didn't have a full set of songs. We only had about five or six songs. Um, we would play, we played a gig, the first gig we played was in Blackwood actually, Blackwood Miners Institute. And um, there was about seven or eight people there. And the second gig we played was in TJ's. There was about 20 people there. And the third gig we played was in TJ's and there's about a hundred people. And, it, and then it all kind of happened quite fast. Cause I think we got, we got an NME review. We supported somebody and the NME gave us a good review. And in those days, much more than today, the, the music journalists uh, then had a credible amount of power. You know, if, if they said something about you positive, your phone would ring, you know? And yeah. so we just got, we got a couple of lines in the enemy. Uh, we were supporting an American band called uh, Thornberry and they, they, uh, they didn't get such a great review, but we got a, we got a, we got some positive lines written about us as a support band. And literally the next day, my phone was just ringing. Don't even know how they got my number. So that's, that's what it was like then. The, the phone started ringing after we did about three gigs and we didn't have a manager. We didn't have any money. We had to borrow equipment every time we played a gig. I was married. I had a small baby. My, my wife at the time was working. You know, I didn't know what to do, didn't really know what to do. So I, I phoned up a friend of mine, Hugh Williams, who was in the Proustics. And he was uh, knew more about the business than me. And I, I asked him for some advice. And um, he said, oh, I was put, put a single out. I said, well, how are we going to do it? He said, oh, put, I, we'll just start a label and put it out ourselves. So then another friend of mine, Carlton B. Morgan, a legend, a guru, he used to do the cartoons in the enemy, great pop things. Do you remember them? Yeah, yeah. So Carlton, uh, he's from South Wales. Carlton and uh, John Langford uh, from the Mekons, they used to do the cartoons. So Carlton had just been made redundant <laughs> from the water board in Wales. And so he had a wad of cash. And he said, I'll lend you a thousand quid to put a record out. So we took it. I said, look, man, we might not be able to give you this back. And he said, oh, you will. <laughs> and we did. So we, we, met, we, met, we made a happy shopper and um, we did it in a day, basically. And we put that out on our own label to call Town Hill, Hugh Williams's label uh, from Proof uh, Sticks. And that started to get played by Steve Lamarck and Joe Wiley quite regularly, which, which uh, turned the heat up again on things. Uh, and then we signed a singles deal with Rough Trade and put out a single on Rough Trade. And by this time, we were getting quite, quite a lot of interest from, from the majors. Um, and so we signed to a label called Indolent, which is RCA, basically, fake indie. Uh, but we only signed for the UK and um, Europe. And then we did another deal in America with Geffen Records. You obviously had a lot of pressure on you in terms of being able to write more music and more songs. Yeah. And how did what was that like for you having just a small set? That you know, you hit the nail as it were on the head. That, that really was. Um, I really felt that. I think in a way, I was a bit older than. I mean, I got uh, four. I'm four years older than Mike, and I'm like eight years older than Carl. I mean, Mike wrote as well. He wrote some of our best tunes, but he did, he he um, was particularly prolific. Uh, so I really felt the pressure to write, you know. It was really tough. They basically, I, I was writing all the time, like all the time, you know. So like I said, I had a small baby and a, basically I was just up all night with a guitar writing songs. And also also the pressure of, in terms of just being 
you know, labels want you to play as much as possible. And that would have been exhausting as well. Although, you know, exciting. But as I say, if you've, you've already kind of, you know, uh, tread your wares, so to speak, in terms of the bands you were in prior to that and always already skeptical about, skeptical about the, you know, the music industry. And so that would have been an, an, an extra element, I guess, of pressure that you, you weren't necessarily used to. Well, kind of that that period in the mid '90s was unlike anything that I had um, experienced before. You know, the kind of focus on it was like a frame Britpop, I think, which um, you could, uh, you know, which, which kind of bands either fitted into or didn't. You know, the kind of the big Britpop bands obviously had those kind of strong re- reference points, but the kind of a lot of other Brit pop bands I don't I never really like like a lot of other bands I would say we're not Britpop all I all I really mean by that is that is that we were happy to kind of you know surf that wave you must have been as well incredibly um relieved to get such positive reviews back from the music press as well yeah we were uh, I, I am forever <laughs> we we did we, we were really lucky you know we we, we got some great reviews uh, not not always we got the occasional you know, uh, but you've got, to, you've got to roll with them. But um, generally speaking, we've got really positive, positive press, which I was glad about, actually, because I'm a big reader of the music papers. I love The Enemy and Melody Maker and Sands. used to read them all, you know, every week, ever since I was a teenager, I read the music papers. So when to actually be in them, even, even uh, I mean, sometimes, even if it's just an, at the beginning, it's just an advert with the band's name on it, it gives you a thrill, you know, in mm. the gig guide. Remember the gig guys? Yeah, yeah. So when you actually people start writing about you, and if you get a great review of your of a record you make, it's absolutely brilliant. It really is. I mean, the music papers then was so important. Uh, personally, I think it's it's uh, something of a tragedy, really, that we we seem to have lost that. You know, people still writing about music, absolutely, and it's, uh, but we kind of lost that real kind of concentration on the, on, on the music papers where they move so fast and they would bring new bands to you all the time. So in terms of like touring and things, just wanted to, to if I can ask a few things, because, you know, you, you mentioned some the bands that were influences and Dinosaur Jr. being one of them, but you, you got to sort of play with these guys uh, and some sort of, you know, major bands that were sort yeah. of very well established and the Sex Pistols. I was just going to ask you about those kind of situations and, and how that would have been for you. Well, I can tell we played with Oasis four times, and we played with them very early on. And I did, in fact, so early on, I didn't know who they were. I'd never heard of them. I took, I got a phone call one night, and it was Marcus Russell, who was their manager. Actually, I'll I'll go back a bit. There, There were some posters around town where we live, and the posters said Oasis plus very special guests just up the road in Monmouth was Rockfield Recording Studio and Stone Roses were making a second come in there. So everybody, I mean, Oasis were from Manchester. So the, the rumor going around town was that Stone Roses were the very special guests. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think this is just to sell tickets because nobody was, nobody was buying them. You know? And then I think it was about, must've been about a couple of days before the show, I got a phone call from Marcus Russell and he said, will you support, do you want to support Oasis? at uh, TJ's it was and so like I said I hadn't heard of them and I was like 50 quid yeah okay um yeah we haven't got a van or anything so we you know he's just bringing guitars and 
we use their kit. You know, you do that when you support a band sometimes. We were waiting outside the venue and the band pulled up, in a, uh, the Oasis pulled up in the transit van. I'm pretty sure Bonehead was driving it. And um, they all came in and they set their gear up and they started to sound check and they were just playing Day Tripper by the Beatles, that riff, you know. Mm. Uh, and there was a guy who sat next to me. It's a guy, a guy who stood next to me. And I, I said to him, where's, where's the singer? Because there was nobody singing. And he said, I'm the singer. <laughs> and I said, aren't you going to get up and aren't you gonna get up and sing with him? And he, he's had some massive row with them, you know. He said something to me, which I'm not going to repeat from the podcast, but he wasn't going to get up and sing with them. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and then a couple of weeks later, we played with them again in Cardiff. By that time, they, they'd already had their first front cover in the NME. And then we played with them a couple of other times, once in Sweden and uh, somewhere else. London, I think. Yeah, we played with Dinosaur Junior at the Brixton Academy. Uh, we toured, so the, the tours were better. Like we toured with Ash, who were great, a great, fantastic band, and really good fun as well. And the Brew Radleys, who were also really good fun. Yeah, how did you get on at festivals as well? Because I mean, the, the, the kind of like the Glastonbury would have been a, a a real kind of highlight, I expect. Yeah, that was a real. It was a great show, actually, the Glastonbury, in my to my memory, at least. And I think it was the year that it was pissing down the rain, you know, and half the stages were singing in the mud, but we, we soldiers, I think so. It was something, it was wet anyway, or is it always wet? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you about that Glastonbury show, though. Um, going on directly before before we played was uh, some friends of ours called Dub War. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of uh, from the same town as us. I actually went to school with two of them. But uh, they, were on, they were on before us. But something happened with their drummer, he became ill or something and he couldn't play. This was like literally 10 minutes before they were on. They were in the dressing room next door. And so John Lee, who was a drummer in Feeder, who was also from the same town and so was part of the gang, he, he just jumped up on stage uh, with Dub Wall and he just jammed the set with them. Incredible, really. Yeah. He was an incredible drummer, John. And then and then we played after them. And and it was great. How did, you, how did you get the Sex Pistols uh, gig? Oh, yeah, Sex Pistols show. Uh, how did we get it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... we, got it. But we didn't want to turn it. it was, you know, it was like, really, it was kind of, a, you know, it was kind of an uncool thing to do, really. That, that's the truth, the truth of it. And I think more time has probably passed since then than had before, you know, when they split up. So what was it, 1996? Was that when it was? Apparently, according to Wikipedia, yes. <laughs> okay. So in 1996, um, when did the when did the pistol split up? 78 or 79 or something? So 16, so that's 18 years. And then how long was go? I mean, you know, it's like it's it's now it's 26 years or, or so. Yeah. So um we were offered it and it was like, well, we're gonna have to do this, even though it's you know it's uh but I, I remember that show for, for many reasons because it was also from a purely technical point of view it was like are they any good to like you know live we all know that the album is is brilliant but with actually you know and and they were known i don't think the pistols played anywhere bigger than a, a club really the first time around because they you know I thought that, that was the nature of, of the band so mm. <clears throat> at the show itself i remember who was playing fluffy played i think iggy pop played i saw iggy pop walking around backstage um was it the wild hearts i think so so when it came time for the pistols, or when we, well, the actual gig itself was 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 wasn't great. People were just there to see the Sex Pistols, you know. 
Yeah. Nobody yeah. wanted to see any. Nobody wanted to see anybody else. It was like just looking at their watch. Get on with it. We want to see the Sex Pistols. But when the Pistols came on stage, just before they came on stage, I said to Mike, "We got to get up on the side of the stage. We got to see this." And so we had a wristbands, but the Pistols weren't doing access all areas for the support bands. You, you know, you couldn't get up to the side of the stage. But somehow, I, don't, I can't remember how, my mouth thought just by doing some some trickery, we managed to get up on the side of the stage and uh, we, were, we were with a small group of people. And I, remember, I remember that. It was, a, it was Noel Gallagher, Kate Moss, Johnny Depp, and uh, stood next to me and Mike, and we were like, we're here. We get up on the side of the stage. And if you looked at, looking across the stage, the Sex Pistols had brought down like a backdrop, but it was at the front of the stage, you know? Mm. So they were behind behind the backdrop, if you like. They were There was this backdrop between them and the people. And the backdrop was the front page of the Daily Mirror, the Filth and the Fury, a famous front page headline. Yeah. And what they were going to do is they were going to rip, burst and burst through the paper. That was it. And I, I do remember, remember this quite clearly. They were all kind of grouped together and uh, John Lydon was talking to them, I can only imagine what he was saying, but to me, they looked really, really nervous and absolutely, then he kind of, he kind of gave a count and um, some football introduced them and then they, they, they went for it. They burst through the backdrop at the front of the stage and then the roadies pulled the backdrop off and then they launched into, I think it was bodies. And I'll tell you what, it sounded, sounded brilliant. And it was Glenn Matlock on bass, obviously. And, uh, so it was the original lineup. Yeah. And and they were they were great. You know, they they were totally in control. And Steve Jones, I think, is hugely underrated as a guitar player. I mean, he only does one thing really, but he does it better than any anybody else. So yeah, it was a good memory. In terms of um the second album then and and, and writing for that, and then I guess, you know, eventually calling it a day. Um Talk us through the kind of the writing and recording of the of the second album, uh, which was Joy and Magica. I mean, really, when all is all is said and done, as they say, as the saying goes, uh, you know, you've only got the work you've made, really. And I think the first album, we all think the first album is, is pretty good. You know, it was re released again a few years ago, and um, but the second album, we were kind of falling apart by then. I don't want to go into the miserable details, but. Um, there were some health issues in the group that were insurmountable, insurmountable. Um, we went to America to record it. We went to, we recorded it in New Jersey and we mixed it in New York. And um, it was just, we, we were falling apart basically. I didn't want to be in the band anymore. And, uh, but we, I mean, I, 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 I listened to that record, but I haven't heard it for years, but I think it's got some really good songs on it. Actually, it's got some great songs on it. But it doesn't cohe. It's not cohesive. It's not a collective sound in the way that the first record is. And, and that sound, do you reckon, just the, just the pressure and the just the exhaustion of being so busy for in a short period of time, and you know, the pressure to write more music, and and forced into that kind of small, tight environment, if you like. With the I, I think that in the, with the first album, we were we completely to, we toured that record. You know, uh, you know, we we played for uh, I can't remember. We were on tour for like two years. And then we made the record. Um, with the second album, we weren't <clears throat> communicating with each other really enough. 
Um, you know, we, we weren't all communicating with each other in, in, a, in a proper way. One of us wasn't well. And I think also that the, I, I always kind of felt felt this way, even in the very beginning, that the band had a very kind of finite lifespan, you know? And I don't mind that. I don't mind that we were only together a few years. And, you know, I like to, I like, I'd like to have made a few more albums, but we didn't. But I always knew that we, you know, even even in the early days, I kind of thought, well, we'd be lucky to get three albums. We got two. But um, so, I mean, some bands just seemingly go on forever, you know. Well, good luck to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I didn't want to, we didn't, didn't want to go on. It was, it was, yeah, I wanted to call it a day. You went from strength to strength in terms of just your career in, in music. How did you decide to sort of continue in, in, in a songwriting way or or not just songwriting, but session. You were sessioning as well, weren't you? For some, yeah, well, know. I was kind of bad. To be honest with you, I was a bit lost. I, was bad. I mean, I didn't. I mean, I loved the Sixty Foot Dolls and and um, well, the, the the guys anyway. The, Mike and Carl, like I said, we still we're still really great friends now. But as a band, we were too dysfunctional at the time. We all had our own problems, really. Uh, but when that when that band kind of called it a day, I did some demos, which eventually became an album which I put out on Rough Trade which um, I didn't I didn't tour I didn't have a band or anything and uh, the session stuff I never I mean I'm not a session guitar player I, people just asked me to play I played with Bernard Butler and David McCartman for a while just as a, as a he's a, a really great he's one of Britain's truly great guitar players and he's a really great bloke as well so I did it Really, could I, I I I did it because I simply liked the liked McCartman and Butler. You know, I mm. thought, well, I'll, I'll just play. It'd be great just to play guitar and not uh, have all the pressure of being in a band. You know, yeah. So I did that, did that for a year, I think, and um, and then the drummer from that band, Mako Sakamoto, sadly no longer with us. He he was session. He was doing lots some sessions for Dido, <laughs> and he asked me to play guitar. So I, I somehow got into doing that. And um, but I got out of it quite quick as well. I did some songs on, on that album, uh, but being a session player really wasn't for me. I suppose you're referring to the Duffy stuff for you. Is that well? I was going to move. To ask about that because obviously it's 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 quite. I would say you know being in terms of what you did for that her as an artist and and kind of this in terms of songwriting and support, you must be quite proud of that. Yeah, definitely. Again, that was something that was almost. Um, at, at that time, I was just kind of bounced. I was kind of just doing doing stuff as it as it came to me, and that and that was really uh, because Owen Powell from Catatonia, the guitar player Owen, <clears throat> he wanted to write some songs. We both had small children at the time, and I didn't want to be in a band. I didn't want to form. He want. I didn't want to form a band basically. So we decided to try to write some songs, and we did write a few. And then um, he knew of a girl up in North Wales. Nevin, uh, a Welsh speaker, and he said we should check her out. She, I think she was just singing in the covers at the time. I have to, I mean, pop isn't really my thing, you know, I'm into rock really. I do, I do love pop music, but it's not, I'm not comfortable with it. Um, not comfortable making it, I mean. Mm. But when I heard Amy Duffy sing, I thought, I don't know, you kind of, when, you, when you're there in the moment of working with certain people, it's quite easy to listen to a singer or a guitar player or something and be quite critical 
if you don't know them or if there's a distance. Mm. When you really come in close contact with some talented people, it can become very obvious how talented they are, you know. And I just felt she really has a voice, a voice on her. And so we started working with her, just doing demos with her, developing in the early days. And then eventually, you know, it was obvious that there's only so much we could do. And so took it to Rough Trade where they they managed her career to great success. Mm -hmm. so, but she did a few of, yeah, she did, she did cover some of some what some of my songs, which I'm forever grateful to. Yeah. It's amazing. And then you kind of fell into sort of, um, you know, teaching songwriting. How did that come about? So anyway, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, I've, I've, I've basically been working in higher education for, um, it's about 2008. So what's that? 13 years? Yeah. Yeah. So I started, somebody knew who I was and said, will you come in and do a couple of classes on this BA music degree they were running in the uh, University of Wales. And um, so I thought, oh, I don't know if I could do this, you know. So, but I, I thought, well, why not? So I go in and I, I taught four classes and it just went really well. And I, I kind of found that I had an, I really enjoyed it basically. And the students seemed to enjoy it. So then I, I picked up some part-time work and then I was offered a full-time gig as a senior lecturer at Bath Spa University. And I was there for, just over five years. And then I moved to the University of South Wales. And then I went to Hereford College of Arts. And I've stepped back a bit now and doing some of my own research and at the moment. Uh, so yeah, so I've just been teaching higher education since then. So I, I didn't really have, I never had any ambition to be a session player, that's for sure. Mm. And I'm not, and although I enjoy writing songs, I have never really had an ambition to write songs for other people either. It's just something I found myself had fallen into, you know. So what's the future then to carry on doing sort of uh, music? Have you, and I guess what I'm going well, to ask is, will you ever do any, are you attempted to do anything sort of live or play live music again or get a band together? Yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> it's funny you should say that. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I, no, I kind of, I'd really, it's really about if I if I write some songs, uh, make some make music I think good enough. Yeah, I will. But uh, I'm kind of personally a believer in like when you're in a band, you kind of you have to, it's like you should be have you have to write something otherwise you haven't got a set, you haven't got a record. But especially as I'm older, it's like if I put something out, I want it, I, I want to think it's good, you know. Mm. Um, so if I if I write something and make something, I haven't got the ambition musically. To put something out if i write something i think is worth putting out i will well we'll have to wait and see then won't we yeah <laughs> a big thank you to coming on and doing the interview because a lot of uh, the listeners have been asking uh to track you down and and to, to get the, the 60 foot doll story and everything else you've been doing so it's been an absolutely of an absolute pleasure to speak to you oh thanks chris oh i will say that um you know the, the, the dolls was a short-lived but very important part of my life and me and carl and mike still really still really great friends and, and that's actually um as kind of sentimental as it sounds is kind of really important to me you know that part of it so it's been good talking thanks ever so much richard Cheers, Chris. all right bye. take care bye bye huge thanks to richard for joining me on the podcast it was again an absolute privilege to speak to him so this is the part of the podcast where i talk about all the ways you can support it and um again thank you so much for listening every week it really makes everything worthwhile 
as you all know, I write and produce the podcast all on my own and without any sponsors or financial backing. So if you want to financially support the podcast just to help, um, you can follow the Ko-Fi or coffee link that's in the show notes, which allows you to donate £3, essentially buy me that virtual coffee. Uh, that will really help uh, pay the server bill. Also, follow on social media. Uh, just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't done already, please go to Apple Podcasts, the app or via desktop and leave a five star rating if you can and a short review because that really helps in terms of getting feedback from you and helps in terms of raising the profile of the podcast and tell your friends as well that really helps so i'll be back next week hopefully with another episode so until then take care <laughs> <laughs>